papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis on issues pertaining to the media, mostly the news media, but sometimes there are things outside news. We'll see what we can do. I'm Rex Smith from the Upstate American, and I am here with Alan Shartok. Rose- <laughs> there is no Rosemary Mayo. This happens all Rosemary, the time. Rosemary, where are you? Doesn't it? I'm really sorry. Barbara Lombardo, not Rosemary Armeo. I guess just the O in the end of the name. Is that what God oh, says? Boy. Oh, Let's boy. Let's go on to Judy now. I'm happy to, I'm <laughs> happy to be Patrick. here. Here. <laughs> yeah, when you have a name like Smith, he confuses everybody. Anyway, we are all here to talk about media issues. We start, Alan, with a letter about a previous show. Oh, no. Uh, yes, an associate editor of the Boston Globe, Larry Edelman, who's a financial columnist, veteran financial journalist, writes and says, given Alan's oft-expressed disdain for national NPR, I was surprised to hear him wonder aloud in the December 4th show whether Nancy Barnes's move to become the top editor of the Boston Globe was a step down from her previous job as the network's news chief. That is, she, Nancy Barnes, has been the head of news for NPR, and now she's becoming the editor-in-chief of the Boston Globe. It was a cheap shot joke. You said, (laughs) okay, well then, never mind. Anyway, but his point is, aside from, thank you, Alan, but aside from that, he says, covering a local community can be as challenging, maybe even more so than serving a national audience. A ton of excellent work is produced by journalists who don't enjoy the pay and prestige that come with a job at a national organization. So how about that? He's a guy who, by the way, worked at Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, and he's now back at the Globe. He says, I took a step down in salary, but I got a big raise in job satisfaction. I want to congratulate him for doing what's right. <laughs> yeah, I love this letter because yeah. people think that you have to get to a bigger paper or a bigger news organization to be successful. And there's there are plenty of ambitious reporters who do that. But as an advocate for local journalism, I believe that good work can be done at the local level. You don't get paid very much. You don't get the book deals. You, know, you don't get the lucrative cable TV views. But a reader of a local paper, it has the same value as one reader of the New York Times. We, we put far too much emphasis on prestige ambitious positions. And also the thought that bigger has to be better. And as a person who spent her entire life at the Saratogian at a small local newspaper by choice, I have no regrets about that. And I was happy to be, we were kind of the littlest fish in the pond, but it was our pond, darn it. (laughs) Well, I'd like to pay tribute to that. And I had job satisfaction out of that. Well, and you produced, I, at the Times Union, which is also not a big national paper, but I hired a number of people from your newsroom and they came well prepared and experienced 
experienced. I mean, I think people got great satisfaction working at the Saratogian, and and I hope they got satisfaction at the Times Union. I was just reading uh, a piece by the New York Times columnist Lydia Polgreen talking about the value of supporting local news. Her first local news reporting job was at the Times Union, and she then went on to do mostly international reporting after the New York Times before she became an op-ed columnist recently. But her point was in encouraging people to give money to those organizations that support local journalism uh, because of the value of it. And I remember when I was in college, a friend of mine was going to become, he said, a small town lawyer. He's going to go to law school and go back and practice law. And I said, why is that going back to your hometown in Texas? He said, because in these communities, where do people turn except to their local lawyer, their banker, their clergyman? And I jumped in and said, and their local newspaper, right? And I think that's true. I think and and even if it's not a necessarily going smaller or bigger, I remember there was a gentleman named Ralph Soda when we were owned by Gannett, and he was an investigative reporter, and then he moved up the ranks, and when I was getting out of grad school, he was then the managing editor at the Saratogian, and actually the guy that hired me. But he really did not like managing. He missed doing investigative reporting, and he ended up going back into working for Gannett and Gannett News Service as an investigative reporter. Mm -hmm. And so he had to make that decision of what do I love doing? Yeah, I'll concede that I, I was an editor, but I, my, my most rewarding years were as a reporter. I loved being a reporter. I really felt made a contribution. Being an editor is, is not as rewarding. As well, I would disagree with that, but there are different strokes but, for different folks. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, with every reporter, every journalist wants, wants to work for, you know, the New York or the New York Times or the Atlantic. It makes it very hard for the small local newspaper to get these people out of college to even consider working for the local paper and covering the Claverack Town Board. Yeah, actually, yeah, I remember telling a friend of mine downstate, yeah, it's really easy to recruit great journalists to work for the New York Times. Try to recruit a great journalist to work for the Times Union, and I did. I'm very proud of some of these great stories that are produced by great journalists who remain in local communities because of their commitment to the communities or the tasks, perhaps, that come to them. We had some great luck in hiring people who were trailing spouses, as the term exactly. goes. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It's really useful. And we really appreciate this work. And if people don't understand the value of the local journalism in their community, look at what's happened to the communities that don't have it. But uh, even the ones that have it, one of the issues is the training or the lack thereof. So I took great pride at the Saratogian in, in having that as a training ground where there would be two types of employees. There could be people just breaking into the business who maybe have their eye at the Times Union or the Gazette or another city, and we would help to train them in the craft. And there were, there were also people who, as you're saying, are in the area for personal reasons and want to stay, and were really, I would feel so fortunate to have people of that caliber. They could hold their own against mm -hmm. uh, the reporters at larger papers. Which raises an interesting uh, question now that you have basically done such a fine job of articulating it. Should one who wants to be trained in journalism do on the job? Is on the job better than going to journalism school? Well, I'm not going to rise to that. I'm the chair Why of the not? alumni board at my... <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm a journalism teacher. At, well, at you know, Albany, I never so took I'll... one journalism course. Not one. I specialized in 18th century poetry and English lit. So, wow. Uh, if you went to a private Did college, really? it would be poetry. <laughs> 18th century poetry. But also uh, political science and women's studies as well. And it was the political science courses that really gave me the skills to look at government. And the other thing is, I think what we want from any journalist that comes into our newsroom is the ability to ask 
ask questions and to think, mm. and to care about the world around you and to be engaged. The generation of reporters before me, many of them did not have journalism degrees. I mean, and they did a different kind of journalism. Many of them did. This idea of professionalizing journalism is something that in the last 25 or 30 years. And now with the dearth of local journalists, a lot of newspapers are rethinking, if I can't get someone with a journalism degree, maybe I need to train local people to do this. Well, part of the problem is that there isn't a staff at these papers. Saratoga and Troy, they don't even have offices anymore. You don't see the editors. So you don't get the training. You don't get that. Yeah. Maybe you're getting some of it remote, but you're not getting that mm -hmm. kind of training that I had hoped for. I was like you, Judy. I was not poetry, but political science as an undergraduate, and it served me well. And now at UAlbany, the students who are majoring in journalism also are minoring in something else. I think there is no set path that is necessarily right. I often urge people not to major in journalism, but it's also a very good major for people who don't necessarily want to go into journalism, who want to learn how to synthesize information, how to write quickly, how to think. So but it's they good, say but the same thing about law school, don't they? Well, except mm -hmm. that three but, but years, I don't know. Three you years want to do after that. you've graduated, and it's a big expense. Yeah, and I wasn't a journalism major or anything. I did go to graduate school of journalism, but that was after I'd already worked for a few years and I wanted to, you know, get skills. And it worked for me. I mean, it certainly made a difference in my life that I'm very grateful for. But I think, Alan, your question is, well, put, can you get the kind of training somewhere on the job? I think the advantage of a really great journalism school is that it imbues you with a sense of the values and some skills that take perhaps years to acquire on the job. Could you give us one example of that? Well, sure. I mean, you learn the skill of having to produce quick on deadline and get an immediate analysis. I mean, you are forced to produce immediately, to write right now, and to think clearly. And you learn the ethic of journalism. That's sort of, for me at least, it was how a journalist thinks and how a journalist behaves. That is what I got out of it. Well, I don't know. I've met some journalists I don't have very much respect for. And you wonder, you know, whether the clear anger that they carry around with them is a good thing. Yeah, I've met some professors I don't have respect for, too. Oh, come on, Rex. Well, you know, I'm just saying. I, mean, I think it was a cheap better, shot on your better, part, so I'll do one, better. too. <laughs> you're better than that, Rex. But, you know, just because somebody raises a valid and good point, you don't have to come back with some nasty <laughs> remark. Well, I don't know that it's such a good point. There are all types of people who are journalists. I mean, just as in every yeah. type of job. So it's a sort of a three against one thing again here? Yep, mm -hmm. and we win. Three against one. Democracy <laughs> prevails. Hey, hey, how about that? But the point you're asking about, do you learn something on the job that can be more valuable than going to courses? Could be. And for me as an intern way back when, I had a couple of internships at newspapers, and they were really the most valuable sure. things that yeah. I could have had. But then I went on for graduate school for journalism and I learned some of those bigger issues and I felt more prepared and skill building, how to write headlines and okay. how to how to measure headlines and how to assess sources, how to interview and building yeah, interviewing but, skills, how to prepare for an interview, how to take information nowadays off the website and, and decide how to present those but stories. But it's not a skill. I mean, graduate school journalism is not really designed for skills. It's designed for thinking. It's designed to produce a higher thought so for process. For me, it was, a, it was a combination of those two because mm -hmm. as an undergraduate, I didn't have some of those skills. I was able to go into my first newspaper job and they said, oh, can you put out these pages? And I knew how to write a headline and count mm -hmm. the 
how to count a headline, which nobody does right. anymore, so, right? So those things were valuable. <laughs> and why does well, nobody do it anymore, Rex? The machine does it. It's, it's oh, so computerized. The machine does it automatically. Yeah. You and can, it doesn't have to fit when you're writing for the Internet. Yeah. You don't have to worry about right. the brakes on a line. Yeah. Anyway, the world has changed a lot since then. I mean, one of the changes I was just noticing is the number of newspapers, especially local newspapers now that are turning to the Postal Service for delivery, you know, which I'm just reading is now increasingly the case. If you can get your paper to the post office by 6 a.m., they can deliver it in order to cut costs, that is. But it's such a change. You know, think of the changes we've seen. It used to be that the afternoon paper was the powerful thing. The paper would get delivered at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to the doorstep, and hubby would come home from the factory and clean up, and his wifey is making dinner. He's sitting there reading the paper. That ended in the 50s, and morning papers became the powerful papers, and everybody pivoted to morning delivery. And then, of course, newsprint itself is dying, and the Internet has taken over. I hadn't heard that. (laughs) (laughs) But this notion of getting uh, your newspaper delivered by the Postal Service is something. Judy, do you have a lot of the papers of the New York Press Association doing that? You know, this goes way back. If you go into the 19th century, this is how newspapers got delivered by mail. And then we got away from it. We had the carriers. And within the last 20 years, a lot of newspapers ended their mail delivery because it became just too expensive. I used to get some of my papers by mail. I would get them the same day that they were printed. I just talked to the publisher of the Watertown Daily Times a month or two ago, and he is going back to mail delivery for some of his territories because he covers much of the Adirondacks. For the daily paper. For the daily paper because it's difficult to get a carrier to cover that territory, especially when there is so much distance between drops, between houses that get the paper. So he found it made more sense to pay for the delivery by the post office because they're going there anyway every day except Sunday. And it made complete sense for him. It, it was getting harder and harder to find carriers. We don't have paper boys or paper girls delivering this anymore. It's usually people in cars and traveling, especially those roads in the Adirondacks in the middle of winter, it can be difficult. So you can always rely on the post office, almost always. And so that works for to them. To deliver it eventually. Though it's expensive, you know, that's the problem. The price of the postal rates for periodicals rose in the middle of last year uh, by about 10%. And so that gets to be a huge cost, which is, you know, another one of the factors leading to the growth of digitization of the news industry. It is cheaper. Well, the other aspect of this is what shape does the print newspaper take when it's no longer being delivered in the morning? It's already old news by the time it comes to you in the morning. Yeah. Although not that much maybe happens overnight between the time it goes to press. But now if you're getting it delivered by mail, it's going to be a different kind of product than it is now. Although for many newspapers, the press times have become so early right. that you're already not getting that you're not getting your sports scores at night you're not getting the city council stories that's because local papers don't have their own presses anymore we should make that clear that's because people are in order to save money publishers are getting papers printed elsewhere even when you consider the Syracuse paper, which spent more than $40 million to install a new press just a dozen years ago, that is no longer being printed in uh, Syracuse. I think that's, are they printing in New Jersey now? Where they, do they go? I think they are. And, and so people should understand that newspapers used to go to press. A morning paper would go to press around 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, and they would run those presses until 2 or so. And so if you had late-breaking news, you could get that in um, as late as 2 or 3. Nowadays, when a printing press is going to print four or five different papers, there's a certain amount 
amount of time between the runs you have to build in to set up the plates. So they're starting to print at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, meaning you're not going to get those scores in. You're not going to get that city council meeting in. Yeah, you're an afternoon paper that's going to be delivered the following <laughs> afternoon <laughs> with any luck. and. Yeah. and are you taking a different approach to what your front page is going to look like? Does it still try to look like breaking news? Now, it doesn't Judy, make any sense. Now, Judy, some people who listen to this program don't always understand all of our nomenclature, and I wondered if you would explain what setting up the plates means. Well, so before a paper gets printed, they have to make plates. These are the pages that, that go on the press, and there's a certain amount of work involved in taking plates off and putting plates on. So for every page, there's a plate. and then or four, if it's in color. Four, four of it, Yeah, mm-hmm. four if it's in color, and almost every newspaper is in color now. And, and so press people have to climb up on the press, physically take those plates off. They have to get them in order. They have to do a test run. The first several hundred copies of a paper usually are not in register. They're not lined up the way they're supposed to be. So there's a certain amount of startup time for every edition of a paper, and there's no fast way to do that. Which is why digital is the superior technology for news. This is what has been driving the digital revolution. It's quicker. The presentation is cool. You know, the pictures can move. What this is telling me is that the reason that publications are trying to find ways to continue their products is to serve their main customer, which is the advertiser Uh in these cases of print. Because if they weren't getting the advertising to support it, this is my theory, then why would they even be doing it? This is certainly not serving enough readers to make economic sense, Mm -hmm. I don't think. But that's a very good point, worth noting. That's Barbara Lombardo. I want to say that very clearly. And Judy Patrick, Alan Shartok, and Rex Smith on the Media Project. If you want to share your views, media at wamc.org. We ought Are to you pay sure you haven't mispronounced my name? Shartok. Um, it's either Shartok yes. or Chartok. And I must say, there are many people, you don't get the difference, do no, you, Judy? You make <laughs> One is a, a, an S sound. So one which is, is it? Cha- what w- should we be calling you well, on, put it this way. on the air? The Chartok <laughs> twins, of which I am one, uh-huh. have never had a unified answer to that Is question. that right? Yeah. Well, with the one so, that counts is the one that's here. So do you pronounce it like a S-H? Some days. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Huh. How about and, now? And Lewis did it with a ch- like an unclear ch- who ch- did what when. Okay. <laughs> Glad to have We're that. We're going to call you Doctor Al. That's yeah. it, Doctor Al. You can call him Al. <laughs> That's pretty great. Ay ay ay. By the time you hear this, there will have been, as the great verb tense goes, a 24-hour strike at the New York Times. 1,100 members of the News Guild of New York are walking off for 24-hour work stoppage because they say negotiations over a new contract are not good. The company's offered a certain amount of money. The union doesn't think it's enough. What the company apparently offered was a 5.5% pay raise upon ratification and then 3% hikes in the next two years, and the union doesn't like that. And there are other factors also in the contract talks. So what do we think about that? How does unionization affect news presentation? Well, it depends who you are. Like, for example, if you are the publisher of the paper, (laughs) unionization may not be all that attractive to you. Whereas if you're a working person who depends on the union to deliver a pay raise or (laughs) some dignity, it may mean a whole different thing. I've been both. During the 18 years that I was the editor of the Times Union, I was, well, 25 years as at Hearst. I was the managing editor before I became the editor, and I was on the side of management. As a reporter, uh, I was a member of the Pressman's Union on Long Island, the Long Island Newspaper Union, and I helped to organize, a failed effort to organize, 
a new unit that came into the paper. You know, the interesting thing is that most union members don't pay a lot of attention to the details of negotiation, but it's impossible to stand against a unified stance, and it's popular to take a stand with your union brothers and sisters. And so whatever the union wants its members to do tends to be what they do, and being more annoyed and angry is quite easy. Being outraged, I want more, I want more. So Mm -hmm. the union really has an upper hand in terms of public opinion, and that is just kind of a reality of the way these kinds of things work, I'm afraid. Right. The union was asking us not to do Wordle right. on the day of the uh, 24-hour strike. So I was torn because I'm a strong advocate for compensating journalists well. I think they are definitely not paid well, especially journalists at local papers or at small papers. But I imagine that the New York Times journalists are probably some of the best-paid print journalists in the world. And to be honest, I think many local papers would be glad for a 5% pay increase. Any pay increase. Any pay, or not to be cut. I mean, that has been the discussion among many union management negotiations is just, please, can we better control how things are cut? And in this place, in this time, the New York Times journalists, and again, the stories don't really indicate what their base pay is. And I recognize the fact that they're living in New York City where the cost of living is much higher, but I, I think they're probably getting in the Seventy to eighty thousand dollar realm. Oh no! Well, more higher. Far more than that. Uh, yeah. Rex mm-hmm. is telling me to go higher than that. But on the other side, I'm sure the New York Times is doing fairly well. They're charging me for everything I do online. It seems. No, it's a shot. <laughs> well, <they're>, I <laughs> mean, no, I can't get a recipe somebody's... without paying more. So I'm torn about this. Maybe if they set the bar higher, then that will lead to higher salaries across the board for journalists. But I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know enough about the ins and outs of what the dispute, the details of the. Dispute. So it seems unfair to make these blanket comments about it. One of the stories that I read about it was how they want the lower level salaries to start at 65000 I'm thinking, oh, that would have been nice for the managing editor at the Saratoga. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a different world. It's a different time. And, and if you're starting at forty five fifty at the Times Union in Albany... You know, maybe 65 is not such an outrageous thing to be looking for at the New York Times. And part of it is the real or perceived disparities, I would guess, between the people at the top and the people without whose content production there would be no mm-hmm. New York Times or any other publication or factory or you know anything without the people actually doing the work. Always the case, I think, when there's a dispute, you look at that gap between what the high level is paid and what the workers are paid, and that is a pretty tough thing, I would think, for a union to accept and to absorb and not feel pretty bitter about it. People need support, and they need somebody representing them. They need some power against management at times, and yet the unions become a life unto themselves you yeah. know, in their you desire know, for power. hard because sometimes they have to take the side of, frankly, incompetence. Yes, they, they, uh, it's not a, a merit-based system. Yes, in defending the least of their members, sometimes it becomes a pull toward a mediocrity. I have to say that is a reality. But at the same time, they produce a certain professionalism that is a base below which you cannot fall. And so to that, the unions deserve the credit. And if it weren't for the unions, I don't know that a lot of the advances of uh, workers would have happened. It's just that it's hard in a professional setting sometimes. And teachers, that there are teachers who probably deserve a lot more money than they're making. And there's some teachers who shouldn't be in their jobs, but there's Mm -hmm. protection afforded by unionization. So it's tough. One more topic before the day is over, and that is uh, we get to the 
Twitter files. Uh, the journalist Matt Taibbi has revealed information that Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter, made available to him showing supposedly Twitter content judges uh, there when there were teams of people making decisions about Twitter content before Elon Musk moved in and got rid of so many employees. Apparently in the in October of 2020, leading up to the election, holding back on content about Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, holding back a story that seemed to be perhaps libelous, wasn't clear if it was true, and the uh, emails showing a lot of back and forth about this. Well, you were all editors for years, so the question I have for all of you is, how did you resolve that kind of conflict? Well, I hope you would try to not publish something that's false. I mean, what I could, what looked to me to not be a matter of censorship, it looked to me like the kind of responsible decision-making that we've been saying social media ought to do more of and that Elon Musk is opposed to. Elon Musk wants to open Twitter once again to all kinds of balderdash. He doesn't care. He just wants it to be big, and the advertisers do care. That's why they're backing away, and Twitter is losing more money than it was before he overpaid his $45 billion to buy it. But I don't. I think it's great that Twitter was thinking about this, and I'd say the same thing if it were Donald Trump Jr. Uh, that they were holding back content on. I think that they need to be making judgments, these social media sites, and not behaving irresponsibly the way that Elon Musk wants Twitter to behave going forward. You know what I thought about this? So what this journalist did is Matt Taibbi is mm -hmm. the, he did a Twitter thread. Is a thread is a series of tweets. And while I was going through the thread, thread, I realized that a thread is actually a news story, and it fortified the belief that Twitter is a publishing platform. It's not just they're not just random tweets. If you do this long series of of threads, I mean they're they're long. They're they're complete articles. I think that they should be held to the same kind of publishing uh, standards that a newspaper, a radio station, or uh, any other traditional publisher should be, because he essentially was publishing an article. And so I think they should be subject to libel just like everyone else. By the way, Alan, you'll be happy to know this sure. bill that you opposed in Congress, the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, apparently is dead. Mm. Uh, there was an effort to attach that to the defense spending bill, and it was axed because of Facebook lobbying. Meta, that is, the parent company, stepped forward and said, we don't want this. This is the bill that would have enabled small media organizations to band together to negotiate revenue-sharing deals with the big tech companies. So if you were a congressman and there was a bill that was up, would you think two or three or four or ten times before you voted against the interests of newspapers which would be reporting on you, setting up an essential conflict of interest? Or would you think two or three or four times before voting against Meta and Facebook, which uh -huh. is a exactly. much bigger yeah, uh, influence sure. in terms, especially in terms of campaign contributions? Sure. I think that's where we kind of might want to see the dynamic. Anyway, we are out of time. Whoa. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, Barbara Lombardo, and Rex Smith here for the Media Project. Thank you all for joining us, and thanks to our producer, David Estina. We'll see you next week. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people when they know they've got a... The Media Project is an inside look at media coverage of current events with WAMC's CEO, Alan Shartok. Former Times Union editor and current Upstate American Substack columnist Rex Smith. 
Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, and Barbara Lombardo, former editor of the Saratogian and current professor of journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen anytime to the Media Project at wamc.org or just schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. I'm producer David Gustino. Thanks for listening. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks, for readers, and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling Advertising, get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press (laughs) 